From the home of the greatest territory in wrestling history, Memphis, Tennessee, it's Wrestling Talk with Mayor McCall, and I'm your co-host, Willie B. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the founder, promoter, CEO, and booker of the stars, ladies and gentlemen, the unofficial president of the Brian Christopher Fan Club, Mayor McCall. Willie B., thank you as always. We have a very, very special guest today. He is a Memphis wrestling historian. He has written and published over 40 books, around 46, I think, to be exact. You have referred to me as the Mark of All Marks, but this time we actually really do have the Mark of All Marks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mark James. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Hey, we've been looking forward to this a long time, so we appreciate you uh, you doing this uh, with us. And we've been, you know, wanting to talk some Memphis wrestling with you and see what you got going on. So, uh, Willie B., let's kick it off. Well, Mark, give us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in, in, in being a fan? What was your What's your background on, on, on wrestling? Uh, just basic beginnings. Uh, early 1970s, around 73 or so, uh, my grandparents watched wrestling. I was at their house, and it came on, and they watched it. And it was like a light switch going on. I was hooked. Uh, first match I ever saw was... Um, Tommy Gilbert and Eddie Marlin taking on uh, the Sherman Tanks, which was uh, Al Gurney and and it was the match where they actually uh, put Eddie Marlin out of wrestling. They threw him in the ropes and then backflipped him over the rope and then he hit his back and it was a big angle and just as a little kid, six-year-old kid, I was just fascinated with it. So that's how it started. From there, just went watching the wrestling on TV and at the Coliseum for years and years. Uh, I guess around 2005, I started uh, noticing on the internet, uh, everybody's, all the different territories had tons of coverage on, on the internet. Websites were real popular back then, so a lot of different, down in Texas, Atlanta, uh, Florida, uh, Mid-Atlantic, uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, all these different big territories had huge presences with websites, uh, tons of information about the territories and everything. Uh, Memphis really wasn't represented. Uh, so the rest it's obviously like the territory itself uh, really wasn't addressed. So I just decided to uh, put together a website to uh, start handling that and just have a place where it was set up and everything was documented and you could get tons of information just to represent it. So the, uh, uh, the territory wasn't forgotten about, and soon after that, I, uh, the uh, the publishing world started changing. It wasn't like you didn't have to be signed; you could actually do your own books if you wanted to. And uh, the cost had come down, and it's in a big. So I decided to start doing the same thing I'd done with the website in book form. And that kind of snowballed, and from that, I did uh, started doing some autobiographies, and from there. Uh, I branched out and did other territories. Um, one of the things I was doing was tons of matches and results. A lot of people were talking about things, but uh, I found a little niche in there where I was doing results. Uh, you know, as many as I could find, uh, cards, results, uh, uh, you know, and uh, just all over the country. And uh, it, it seemed like often people liked it. 
Mark, you have a you have a website called MemphisWrestlingHistory.com, correct? Correct, MemphisWrestlingHistory.com, and then there's an offshoot of that. There's a couple offshoots. Uh, MarkJamesBooks.com, it has all the books listed there that I've done that are still in publication. Uh, you can you also... MemphisT-shirts.com. I've seen your your Amazon page. You have most of your books, or all of your books, it seems, on your Amazon page as well. So those those fans that like to like to use Amazon, you can check out Mark's Amazon page, uh, Mark James, and he's got I mean everything from the Jerry Jerry biography, which I've I had read many many years ago, and you have you know the world according to Dutch, um, the Memphis uh, Memphis wrestling history presents 1982. There's just so many to choose from. I mean it's literally a plethora. Of wrestling knowledge and history. I mean, you could go on for days and days and days, and and still have plenty to read. Um, thanks to Mark's detailed books and his history. As we have yeah, said, on there, uh, like I said, if you go to the markjamesbooks.com, it has the books listed. Okay, you click on those books, and it'll take you to the Amazon page. Gotcha, gotcha. As we had said, you know, you have MemphisWrestlingHistory.com. I believe that was started by you in two thousand and three. You know, of the pure goal yeah, yeah. of making sure the history and story of Memphis wrestling was was never forgotten, and that's you know, that's why Willie B and I do this show to make sure you know the the history and story of Memphis wrestling was you know always remembered and, and highlight certain things and you know do it for the fans and all. Where would what would you suggest like a fan of Memphis wrestling? What what books should they maybe start out at of of, of yours or something to get a good you know history of and rundown of the territory? Uh, probably, you know, the, 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 I've done a couple yearbooks. One was from 77, one's 78, uh, the other one is 82, and it takes you to the things of, or in the middle of the glory years in Memphis, what I consider the glory years of, like, from 74 through about 85. And those three books will get you a really good understanding because they look uh, the ch- each book is 12 chapters and it's one month, each chapter is a month and it looks what went on at the Coliseum what went on on TV all the matches, all the results uh, what was going on uh, in the bookings, who was coming in, who was going out and it gives you as best snapshot I feel that you could get with what was happening in the territory and uh, you also in those books is the each of the monthly programs that were sold at the Coliseum and throughout the territory wherever you went. So you get, you know, 52 weekly programs in the book. You get the results. You get everything going on. And it, it's a way to totally encompass yourself in what was going on in Memphis Wrestling in those years, 77, 78, and 82. That, off the top of my head, that would be the best. There's another book. Uh, I, I did a poster book, uh, Top 100. And it's sort of that. It, it, I... Jerry Lawler's blessing. I created posters for the Monday night cards, and then I talked about why the, that card was so important to Memphis wrestling. That gives you a really, really good uh, grasp of what was going on, what was important, and why it mattered. Uh, you know, there's just you know, and, and it, you know, some people like results, some people like stories. And you mentioned Jerry Jarrett's autobiography. I mean, that's the guy who, you know, every memory I have of Memphis wrestling was created in Jerry's brain. He Earth doll, so you know the, you can't go wrong with that book either. Well, and let, let's talk about Jerry. You know, we we we, we lost him back in February. 
He is, as you yep. just said, he is the the brains, the mind, the genius behind Memphis wrestling, especially you know the eras that, that we all love and, and and grew up on. Can you tell us a little bit about that process of how you got to know Jerry, how 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 it became about, how long it was to do the research, just a rundown of what it was like to do the book with him. Yeah, uh, I first started. I contacted Jerry. He was on, I guess, what maybe or might have been Twitter. What was before Twitter or Facebook? I had his email address. Someone had gotten it to me, and I sent him some emails. And then we're talking probably around 2005, 2006. And uh, I, I, he was he was just uh, you know very open guy. I talked to him some and uh, started asking if I could you know send him a list of questions if he might. He says he didn't mind at all. He'd love to talk about the wrestling and his career and stuff. So we started and forth. I don't know, that lasted six months to a year where I just, a couple times a week, I'd send a couple questions and get them back and we'd discuss it. And that, like I said, about a year we went on and then I started doing the books and all that information that I'd gotten from him, it really helped with the behind the scenes stuff. Everybody's seen what's on TV, they understand the angles, but his behind the scenes stuff explained why they were doing what they were doing. And that to me was the vital part. That's what none of us as fans ever knew in front of the TV what was going on. He explained it all, why it was happening. His philosophy, the booking of it, and psychology and all these things. And that was just just instrumental in me starting uh, uh, really doing more than just the results of the books, but writing the books like the 82 book. Uh, His insights were just off the chart. So we did the and uh, he helped me with some other things in the books. You know, always there for information. He said, you need anything, just call. And around, I guess I want to say about a decade ago, he, I think we did the Dundee book at that point and a couple other things. I have that one Probably as well. Around. I have that one as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. got about five, of your, I have about five of your books. So I've all, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, I had done about, I don't know, eight to ten books and he came to me. He had just gotten out of wrestling uh, through the whole TNA fiasco, and he was he was out. He was done, and he had a lot of heart issues going on. And he brought that up to me. He says, "Look, I'd love." At the time, his grandchildren were still little kids, little kids, college, I think, just starting school. And he said, "I would love for my grandchildren to know who I was and what I did." So he wanted to do his autobiography, and I said, "Yeah, let's do it." So he started writing and writing, and I think he, he turned in a manuscript to me that was probably, I don't know, five, six hundred pages. Wow. And we, we had to cull it down a little bit to make it tighter, and uh, I guess I guess the book's 450, maybe 430, something like that, total pages. And uh, we just, he, he oh, and worked on timelines in it, and got the timing right. Of what happened when and where and uh we we just we had a blast doing it it would i think we did it i want to say he had been writing on it before he got me involved with it and i want to say he, we probably worked on the project about six months and uh he loved it i mean he was so thankful for the book afterwards and uh we just had a blast and we were we actually released it right about the same time the documentary Memphis Heat came out. Yep. So it, yep. And uh, it was just it was it was just a lot of fun to work on with him. It was just such 
he was an amazing guy, a great guy, and a really good friend. Uh, like we said, he passed away in February, and I guess it was Facebook or Twitter. I think Facebook. He had posted back in late November when he learned he had cancer, or cancer. And he wrote this little story about running it. It was I and gone to the lake near his house and he was just sitting on the dock or standing on the dock looking at the lake and this old man came up and was talking to him. And it was he was the old man. And it was and it said the old man said he just found out he's got cancer and this and that he and he went through it all. And then I, I read it. Knowing Jerry like I do, I sent him a message the next morning I said, Yeah, I just heard that piece about you, man. I said, you know, you might have fooled a lot of people, but I'm pretty sure you're the old man, am I right? And he never really was let him alone that stuff from just the post. And he called me a week before he passed away. It was to the day, Tuesday before he passed away the following Tuesday. And uh, he said, you know, you were the only one that figured it out. The post, and I said, yeah, I know you pretty well, and I could tell. And then he, he, I won't say we talked for about 45 minutes, never brought up about the illness. Said uh, We talked a little bit about it, what he was going through, the chemo and the radiation treatments and everything. And, wow. But we just talked about Memphis wrestling, and like I said, it was a good 45 minutes to an hour. And he, uh, I, I found out at the uh, service, uh, there was several people he called a week before so I was on that list and it was just I, I we all came to the conclusion it was his way of saying goodbye to us we didn't really say goodbye but he just wanted to call and talk and everybody's conversation was similar to that uh, I know I talked to Jimmy Hart a couple months ago and he said the week the same day that he, he had talked to him and he thanked him for 1980 he said if it hadn't been for you Jimmy in 1980 when Lawler went down with a broken leg Memphis wrestling would not have survived. No, Jimmy was, he said you keep carried it on his back that whole year, and uh, you know just little things like that. And uh, he just Jerry, Jerry, Jerry was just an amazing guy and a good friend, and I uh, I miss him today. Yeah, we we have talked about that before on the show around 1980. You know when Lawler, you know when uh, went down with the broken leg from Calhoun that we also yep. have had on the show. Awesome, awesome guest. That you know, you mm-hmm. know, Jimmy Jimmy Hart stepped up with the first family, and they were able to build those, you know, feuds and get people interested, uh, you know, to come back when Lawler was able to come back healthy to to see some of that stuff that was going to pan out, and also, you know, uh, the boogie woogie man, handsome Jimmy Valiant, he played you know babyface duty that year as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Then at the end of the year, they had him turn heel against to bring Tommy Rich back to the babyface, yep. and they attacked. His mom and Johnson. It had a lot of that heart connection throughout that year, and he was always chiding Lawler, always chiding Lawler. It built up the anticipation for Jerry to come back and get the revenge against Hart. Even though Jimmy didn't break the leg, it was Calhoun, they still started using that psychology to build that angle up. Well, Jim, Jimmy's year. infamous line about the horse is uh, that—that's all it took to, to, to oh, bring yeah. in the heat. That—that's yeah. that one line. That one line is yeah. infamous, oh, yeah. and it brought it brought it brought a heat-seeking missile on him. Oh yeah, and, and it was more, you know, and, and the reason, and, and that's what uh, Jared had told Jimmy was, look, go in there and just rip them. 
you know, he's the one that went and played football. He's the one that, you know, put our business in danger by going and playing football every weekend. You know, uh, just be as rough as you want to be. And that's what Jimmy did about the, with the horse down. Lawler was not happy with it. So that you know, the, so that's a real life shoot. That, that, was that, a, that Lawler was not thrilled yeah. that, that Jimmy said that. That wasn't you know that was legit anger and heat. That was legit heat, legit heat. And that also and, goes back uh, to that, the that, that also goes back to the sign in Jerry Jarrett's office. You know, personal issues draw money. Yep. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to Jerry Jarrett's philosophy. Philosophy of wrestling is it's uh, it's good versus evil. It's biblical. That's what the Bible is. It's good versus evil, and that's why it still works. Psychology is drilled in our DNA. Whether we know it or not, we do things for certain reasons. And that's what, you know, if you're if you're a booker of wrestling, you use that to your advantage. If you can do less and get more of a reaction, why not do it? You opposite know? opposite of what uh, of what the what the children today that do flops on, on T V do. <laughs> they do more yeah, and they yeah, get, get less out of it. Yeah, the, the, that's the deal, and it's that, that's the thing. If, if you, you know, I mean, look at Toji Yamamoto. He wouldn't have to do hardly anything. He could bend over and do this little smile when he was a bad and his tricks like he had salt or something, and the fans would lose their mind. That's, I mean, you know, he did so little and got so much back from the fans, reaction-wise. That's a good point too, because you know, you could you could sit there and watch Tojo just, you know creep around the desk with uh, Lance Russell and Dave Brown not really saying a word and everybody's just kind of nervous like what's going to happen yeah yeah well, and you know and that's when he was managing is that earlier on back in the 70s and early 80s when he was still wrestling that's why he was on almost every call that's one thing Jerry Jerry did was the first two or three matches we usually had a seasoned veteran against a rookie uh, uh, like a Roy Rogers or uh, guys like that were going against Tojo because it was to get them in front of seven, eight thousand fans to get used to that, you know, not be nervous or whatever. And they put them against a Tojo or somebody who had, you know, 30 years experience at that point. And they would see Tojo, <coughs> excuse me, grab a finger and twist or whatever. Hey, you the little dude where he smiled and act like he had something in his trunks. They learned the psychology of just doing little things to get the reactions from the fans. Okay, hey, your phone was breaking up a little bit. I'm not sure if it's the the headphones or what, but it was. Uh, but I, I heard you say that he was doing it to antagonize the fans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He. Uh... <clears throat> Let me switch off the ear thing real quick, and I'll go on the just on the. Uh my phone here all right all right you guys still there oh yeah much better thank you thank you okay we good 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 clear. good all right good deal yeah he uh yeah tojo they would put the younger guys in with tojo as an example because he was such a veteran and they would learn the psychology from tojo and the, the few things he would do they would get the big reaction and then if he twisted your finger you screamed the fans would boo, and they learned all this, you know, do less, get bigger reactions. Yep. And, and speaking of Tojo, he, he trained many of the wrestlers. I know, didn't he not train uh, Jeff Jarrett? He trained quite a few. Am I, and Jerry, am I, if I'm, I remember correctly. 
Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of guys he trained, and that that was his job, uh, you know, till he quit wrestling in the mid '80s. And uh, young guys, the the first few matches on the card, as I was saying, was always you had rookies against veterans. You know, first two or three, you'd have a, a Roy Rogers who was Johnny Rich, or you know, at the time, uh, just different young fellas. Bobby Fulton is another great example in the early. He was trained by Dundee, but they would still have him get used to wrestling in front of big cards on the first couple matches. And Memphis always used that as the training. And it helped later on. Used to being in front of seven, eight, ten thousand people in matches that don't really matter, but it gives them great experience. Absolutely. Mark, what I'm curious about and what I want to know. Yep. It's like, you know, you say you contacted, you know, you, you built that relationship with Jerry Jarrett. Y'all had a series of, you know, communication that went on for months and connected. And, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, you know, did a book and everything like that. For your other books, like, run down, like, the process. Like, how would, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start. Like, you know, all the all the, the TV results, the Mid-South Coliseum results, all the historical information. Like, wh- wh- where does one start that process at? It's a lot easier nowadays to do it with all the online newspapers and newspaper.com. But back in the day, I had to go to uh, the University of Memphis uh, library has, I guess they still do, a microfilm of, gee, about 200 different national papers in their library. So you would just go get, you know, each reel and put it through microfilm. I mean, you know, there, there was no other way to get it than there was no online presence. So you literally put the film in from January 1, you know, like Memphis had two papers through 19, the late 1983 that had the press seminar and the commercial appeal. When you go get the uh, the commercial appeal paper from like January 1 through the 14th or 15th, uh, 1981, you'd go get that reel and put it in and go through. And you knew Sundays when they usually put the ad in the paper, so you'd go get the Tuesday edition usually had the results so you go get that <clears throat> and uh the machines will scan for you digitally scan and uh <clears throat> excuse me you just um you do that that that's how you find the matches and the results uh you know you pull up atlanta paper there there was a lot of uh uh started in the early 70s late 60s there was a lot of people who started um like the the WFIA, the Wrestling Fan International Association, whatever it was, they started uh, mailing results back and forth with people. Like if someone was in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, might have known a guy down in Miami, the guy in Miami would forward match results for Miami to the guy in Minnesota, and he'd send his from Minnesota down to the other guy. And people had newsletters and whatnot going on, and they would exchange. So they're you know that became a record book, so to speak, because uh, people would share results of what was going on in the territories. Because there was no cable, there was no the, the magazines might talk about. You know, th- there was wrestling magazines, but it was nowhere near the coverage of what was actually going on. I mean, you got to realize in the '70s there was probably 35 territories across the United States alone, the continental U.S. And so, you know, little 60-page magazines talking main stories are not. You might get four or five cards results out of a magazine, and that was about it. 
that's kind of it was kind of like a behind the scenes black market information pool and uh, all those papers from back then have been collected people collect them and this and that and share the information so it's just a matter of hooking those guys hooking up with those guys that have any uh doing the, the legwork like i said the legwork i mean i would i'd, I'd go to the memphis well, university memphis library probably around 8 30 in the morning and i'd leave around 4 30 in the afternoon wow and yeah i mean i literally spent months at the library scanning all the results and then once you scan them the microfilm sucks the quality is horrible the picture so you got to clean it up to be able to even look at the stuff so that took another couple months to clean that stuff up so that but that that you know that's how you get stuff like that um program you find different collectors uh you buy their stuff if they don't want to buy it kind of rent it from them borrow it whatever and then you scan the information and you give it back to them and um you know it's just um kind of what i did there wasn't a rule book or a explanation of how to do it you just kind of went by the seat of your pants you you know it's almost 20 years ago i started doing it so it's uh you just went by the seat of your pants and did it and you know no one else was doing it so it's up to you okay and it falls back like we were talking it's about making sure the material was preserved and not forgotten well, definitely, we uh, on behalf of you know on the behalf of Wrestling Talk with Mayor McCall and all the Memphis wrestling fans, we appreciate all your patience, hard work, and due diligence to dig through the archives that you know to keep the memories alive. So, thank you for doing that, Mark. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. I, I just you know it was such a big part of my childhood and youth and everything, and it's it was gone, and I just didn't want it forgotten. That's the basic thing. Uh, it was good. Too many people loved it for it to be just thrown away. And also, you're a big collector of uh, Memphis wrestling memorabilia, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got, uh, I don't know, from 1950 through the early 90s, I probably got somewhere between four to 500 of the Memphis Monday Night programs. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and... Um, Tons of the old gimmick table photos that Mr. Coffee sold. I probably got around 750, 800 of those. Yeah, coffee. The originals. Yeah, the originals are not, you know, copies of. And just, uh, you know, just stuff like that. I just, I don't know. It was when it was real back then and it was happening. And I, I just always loved that stuff. And, you know, I just tried to collect it to preserve it. What, what would be the piece of probably the highlight in your collection? Something that would really stand out to you? Uh, let's see. I, I don't know. There, there's a couple things. One of the biggest to me, I've got a uh, Jerry Calhoun referee shirt from a match he did with uh, Jerry Lawler against Andy Kaufman and Jimmy Hart. Oh wow, that's um, yeah, that's that's rather historical. Yeah, and I've also got the outfit, uh, tights, trunks, Tarzan strap from Jerry Lawler from his. The match where he lost his hair to Austin Idol and Tommy Rich. Oh wow, from '87, and that's pretty cool to have. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the, those things stick out. I mean, I've got a business card. I've got a business card that came from Roy Welch from back in the '50s. Um, I've just got a bunch of different eclectic stuff. Um, I've got a wrestling license from Dundee, Dutch Mantel, Jimmy Valiant. Um, you know, it's just, you know, weird stuff that 
I think is cool, I try to collect it. And you know, you're you're the Memphis wrestling historian, so that makes me feel a lot better about you know the direction we have taken in this show and and what we've done. I mean, just to sit here and you know to hear you talk. I mean, we've we've had Handsome Jimmy, we've had Jerry Calhoun, yep. we've had Tommy Rich. And, you know, speaking of Roy Welch, our last guest was a Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. So I think we're yep. definitely trying to hit on the, you know, the basis and and, and the memories of, of, of Memphis wrestling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was definitely. your uh, what was your favorite feud or, or angle, you know, you know, uh, watching Memphis wrestling or being a part of it? Uh, in the, you know, I'm. Different, and it was. If they were fun, that's all I really cared about. Uh, you know, love Jimmy Valiant. Valiant had the deal where he'd come in. He was the heel in you know seventy seven, seventy eight. His first trip here, and it was to bring Lawler back as a, a good guy. He had been a huge heel for the past several years, and they needed somebody really good. His deal was an accident. He wasn't supposed to, you know, stay. They were putting the belt on. A uh, guy who wrestled as Mr. Wrestling wasn't the real Mr. Wrestling, but they were going to use him to kind of bring back as the good. Valiant was just so over with the Memphis fans. They they decided, Jarrett called an audible that night and sent word to the ring because Boogie was supposed to lose to Dundee with a coin toss after a 10-minute time limit. And he told the ref, hey, put Jimmy over. So that, that got the ball rolling there. But uh, the Valiant feed was just so good. Valiant was so good and worked so well with the Memphis style. Um, Love the LeDuc feud with Lawler. You know, from there it went on. They brought out uh, actually Robert Fuller got okay seventy eight and till the summer of seventy nine, and he brought in Austin Idol. That was a great feud. Oh yeah. Uh, kind of look at Austin as the first uh, muscle guy for Memphis, and um, you know you. you I mean, the Terry Funk feuds. I mean, that, that's the thing. You can't limit yourself and say, well, this is the best. Or they, they, No, they're all amazing. You know, in 81, he had the Terry Funk feud. You know, in 82, he had... That's when uh, first of the year he had Dutch Mantel and a baby... They were baby faces. Well, I'll still put that, that match with... The, the last match of that feud in 82, right, which was the week before Andy Kaufman, Lawler, uh, he fought... Dutch, the Jerry fought Dutch in the, uh, the the final conflict. It was a barbed wire match. And it's still one of the... You can watch it on uh, YouTube. It's probably, to me, one of the best... There's two examples to me of telling a story in a match. That's one of them, just because it was so well done that after the match, neither guy lost any any shine off of it. It was really good. Uh, the other one would have been uh, the Lawler-Dundee Loser Leafs Town match in the summer of 83. Very well done with Dundee playing the bad guy. And uh, just that told the story so well. So that's the angle. Uh, that and you know, all the, was that the angle that Dundee went down to Mid-South? No, left? that's uh, the deal. No, that was, uh, he went to uh, it, to Georgia. Georgia, okay. Jared had to deal with Ole in the summer of 83. That only lasted about two months and he came back. And um, then in December, he to us and that's when he and the rock and roll and the midnights yep. went to uh, Watts set that territory on fire <clears throat> yeah the, the issues Dundee had with Savage kind of sealed the deal that December because Savage was coming in and yep. they weren't expecting 
they had not expected Dundee back in. They didn't expect Ole to, to uh, uh, the deal to fall apart in Atlanta so quickly. And then the Watts deal came up, and it was sort of a godsend for Jarrett because he was wanting Dundee out. So We talked about your relationship with Jerry Jarrett. What's your relationship like with the king? Jerry Lawler. Oh, it's, it's good. It's good. Uh, he's always been a huge supporter of me and the efforts I've done. He, uh, just like Jerry Jarrett was, they, uh, they're appreciative that the stuff's being done to preserve it, that the real stories are being told, not just, you know, just imagine hearsay. Just imagine if they had, you know, was, had, had not reused all the tapes back in the day and they had kept all the all the TV wrestling, all, you know that man. We there's so much wrestling that is not um, Memphis Memphis wrestling that we'll never see because it wasn't it was it wasn't put on film or it was the tapes were reused. So it, yeah, it, and, it's even more that, special that someone yeah. like you are able to keep it alive because we don't have access to the video. Yeah, and and what they did keep the master tapes on it. They they it burned up in the fire in the uh, TV studio, so that that's lost too. I mean, so yeah, but you know they were that's that's why there's so few. Well, and speaking of Lawler, back then even the tapes were twenty bucks a pop, and Jarrett didn't want to pay it. Didn't want to pay it. Well, speaking of Lawler and, and and Jarrett for that matter, what I guess the longest one of the longer running. Um, Angles in general was Jerry Lawler's world title run. Did did what was Jarrett's thoughts on why it took so long to get him the belt? And why it was the AWA belt in '88? Like why couldn't he? What was did he try to get him the NWA belt? Um, did he ever you know even earlier in the '80s when, when he was having all those matches with Nick Bockwinkel? What was the reason that they couldn't they couldn't put the belt on Lawler? Uh, the in the '70s. Uh, I don't know if it's I guess it started with Harley Race when he was the champ in 70s his second run I guess around 77 he picked up the belt they were uh, him and some of the older wrestlers were getting upset because Memphis would do the videos of Lawler you know beating them or looking like he was beating them and all this and they would show it on the TV and they didn't like like that's something Jarrett never understood it's like guys this is all the work it's not he didn't really beat you. Just don't worry about it. And that kind of caused heat with race and race held the belt for three or four years at that point. And it was so bad that they couldn't get Harley to come back and defend the title here. I think the last match he had here as world champ was uh, late December of 77. So 77, seven, or, or 78, 79, 80, 81. Uh, there was no NWA World Title matches in Memphis. Flair came in after Lawler did um, the David Letterman show with Andy Kaufman, and within weeks, Flair showed up on Saturday morning TV and had an impromptu match with yep, Jerry. I remember, and, that. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yep. uh, that kind of opened the door back up somewhat. Uh, but then they didn't have any matches with Flair here again till '85, late '85. So the reason that's and that's why the AWA came about was because uh, they couldn't get the NWA champ here. Okay. And so they talked to Vern, and in those days, AWA didn't work Monday and Tuesday nights. So it was perfect for Bockwinkle, and you know they they did and that started I guess August '78. They started bringing in Nick as the champion for Memphis. Memphis, you know, even though it was still a member of the NWA. 
uh, became a AWA quote unquote territory. Yep. Uh, and I talked to him back in '09. I interviewed him, and he loved coming to Memphis. He said it was, uh, you know, they'd bring him in, fly him in. He'd come in, have a match. Uh, sometimes he might do Louisville the next night or whatever, or the night before on Sunday if it was then. And uh, he said it was great. Come in, and, he, and most times the night he went Lawler, and he said Lawler was a ring general. He says we'd come in and say, what do you want to do tonight, Jerry? And Jerry, he said, would tell him the same thing every time. Let's call in the ring, Nick, see what the fans need. He said, that's how I loved it. You know, I hated to call matches in the dressing room. He says, we'd just go up there and just have a ball. Whatever the crowd needed, we'd do. Bachwinkle is probably one of the most underrated, and it's hard. I can't believe I'm even saying this. He's probably one of the most underrated world champions back when being a world champion mattered ever, I guess, because maybe he's he's with the AWA, but he was unbelievable. I mean, he had longevity. he 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 was super intelligent. He was an incredible wrestler. He had the look. He had everything. I mean, he is, when you think of a world champion, just like the Flair, you think Nick Bockwinkle. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was just because it was AWA, it wasn't NWA. Right. You know, but people forget that in 85, 86, they were going to bring Bockwinkle. They offered to bring Bockwinkle into NWA and, uh, you know, put the strap on him. Take, he would be the one that would beat Flair. Oh, wow. And they were talking about it like I said it's 85 86 ish and they're talking to him about it and he, he gets to the part where the pay is and they told him to pay he says well I'm making that an AWA and I'm on you know four days a week in the AWA and I really don't have to travel unless I want to but if I'm the NWA champ I gotta go all the world they said yeah you gotta go around the world so he said no thank you no thank you yep yeah and like you had said, Mark, like, you know, uh, Bockwinkle just absolutely loved his time in Memphis. You know, we've talked to a lot of the guys, you know, and their their favorite their favorite times in their wrestling career in their life was right here, you know, in Memphis, Tennessee. That was the high, that oh, yeah. was the highlight. They they just absolutely loved it. Yeah, Memphis was a great wrestling town. I've talked about it in some of the books. I, you know, Memphis did not have a real sports team per se, a professional. Correct. You know, no Major League Baseball, no NFL, no NBA at the time. And that lack of a real sports team to get behind. I mean, you had the Chicks, you had the Redbirds, you had, uh, you know, Memphis State Tigers and stuff like that. But you didn't have the pro team per se. And, you know, with so many, you know, guys, guys need sports stuff. So it became... For lack of everything else, it became the the uh, the the you know the the sport for the area for people to get behind. That's one of the reasons why the Memphis Wrestling TV show had such the the viewership and the Monday night for twenty years did so well as well as you know young guys wanted sports and that was their closest thing to it. And explain it and showing how how impactful Memphis Wrestling was or how legit it was around here is that every Monday night Jack Eaton. Would be on Channel Five and give you the full rundown during sports. Big Jack treated like a treated like a real sport. He would give you the the, the wrestling results. That's that's what it was like around here back in those days. I'm trying to explain that to people that, that didn't grow up here or watch Memphis wrestling, they don't quite comprehend just the level of how how important it was to to the area. As you yeah, said. well you know yeah, and and, and that's the whole thing. Uh, there, there's a page. Um, you know, um, it, it's hard to explain, but you had to live it. There was, like I said, back in the seventies, there was no cable. There was, you know, it, back then, uh, 
five, three, ten, and thirteen were the four TV stations we had, and one was a PBS, so there was hardly ever anything on there. But you know, and then seventy-eight, maybe seventy-nine, we got channel twenty-four, and then a year or two later, we got thirty. And then early eighties, around eighty-two, eighty-three, we finally started getting cable in the area, and you know, in Shelby County. But before then, I mean. It, the world was a much bigger place. You didn't, and you know, if you didn't, magazines, you didn't know who was, you know, there was a whole world of wrestling going on. You just thought it was here. And for that reason, that's why it was so, so engrossing. It, it, you know, we talked about the psychology. It, it's basically wrestling, professional wrestling is male soap operas. Yes. Based in sports. And, and and you use the psychology just like they use the psychology in soap operas. Do less, get more reaction, get people hooked. They want to see who's going to... Uh, using personal angles, if two guys were legit getting in it in public and people saw it, they're going to be in a match. They're going to be in a whole series of matches, a whole angle, because they've already seen them fight. They know it's real. They know they hate each other. And people want to see it. And that's just, you know, you know, they were doing 30 shares in Memphis, which was, you know, out of a, back then, I guess, late 70s, there was about 400,000, 450,000 people in the Memphis area that watched TV. You know, they're getting 300 people watching the Saturday show. Yep. And that, that's unheard of. And, uh, you know, Monday night, you could do the average for the whole year, 52 weekly shows every Monday night. You know, you do the average for the year. I want to say 82 or 7. Now, 77, I think the weekly average for the whole year was in the 8,000 range. It's insane. You know, every so, Monday night, 8,000 people. Yeah, that's what it averaged. Some weeks, are, yeah. Yeah, some weeks there was ten or 11,000. Some weeks there was 4,000. But it, if you add, because uh, I got all the results for them, and I added them, simple math. Yeah. And... Just for Memphis, that was, you know, and you got to realize every night of the week, they were somewhere else. Some cities, after they got the Fabs in, in uh, October of 82, they were running two nights. The Fabs would be on one card, and Law would be on the other card, the main event. And so they could go two nights. What, what, and, and they were drawing big there. How, how big do they draw in, in Louisville at the Gardens? Well, the Louisville was, Gardens was smaller, but they would still draw, you know, four or 5,000 to there. Uh, Evansville was the smallest of the area. I think they're 3,000 seat capacity, 2,500, something like that. And uh, they, they, you know, they were draw, you know, 2,000 to it. So, I mean, that's, you know, I call it the glory days because they were hitting, you know, if they went to a high school, the high school gym would be full. Yep. You know, the, the main circuit was Memphis, um, Louisville, Evansville, uh I believe Lexington was once or twice a month. Lexington, Kentucky, twice a month. Uh, Nashville, after Goulas went out in '80, they started running it weekly. And uh, then you had, uh, you know, then the other places you'd have were once a month places. And then you had some smaller ones that were once a quarter. And then you had others that were once every six months. And uh, they just literally. Every night of the week they were doing, and Saturday and Sunday, Saturday morning, well Friday night you had Tupelo, Mississippi. That was every week because it was close to Memphis, and they would drive the matches to Memphis because they were going to do Saturday morning TV live, and then uh, 
Saturday night, you would either do Nashville at the fairgrounds or a small pickup show in uh, Jonesboro or Blytheville or somewhere like that over in Arkansas. And, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon, Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, every day you were always on the road. I've got an off-the-wall question for you because you're in the know and you're the king researcher. What in the hell happened to uh, Richard Lee, a.k.a. Leroy Smith of, of the Moondogs? I, everybody I talk to, it's like he vanished. Nobody can tell me anything about Richard Lee. Mark, can you, can you tell me anything about Richard Lee? I'm trying to track the man down. No, I just heard he uh, walked away. He walked away after it was done. And I think he's living in the hills in Arkansas somewhere. That's what I heard. Somewhere in Arkansas, he's retired and just don't do nothing. He's an enigma. I, I, I don't oh, like yeah. to. I don't like to think anything you know bad or anything negative. So I'm still in my mind. He's still keeping you know, kayfabe alive. He's still running from the dog catchers. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know a lot of guys just they weren't used to being in front of the camera, always being on, always having to address fans. You know, you walk up somewhere, if you think about that, going to a grocery store, boom, somebody starts talking to you about it, talking about wrestling, about the moon dogs, about this and that. Some people didn't handle it as well. Yeah. And once it was done, they were done. Uh, you know, like Jim Cornette. I mean, he was on the road from 1982 till two or three years ago when COVID hit. He was always going places, doing, doing, doing. And he reached a point when it's like, you know, I'm not leaving my house anymore. I had to be somewhere for 40 years. I was always late somewhere for 40 years. And he says, I'm not doing it again. You know, he's not leaving the house anymore. He doesn't go do shows anymore. He's not going to do any more shows, he said. And, you know, a lot of guys, it's like, look, I had to be somewhere. I don't want to be nowhere. And that's, you know, everybody has their own deal. Everybody has a breaking point. You, when you've had enough, you've had enough. And I, I, yep. it makes makes total sense. Like you said, Corn, Corning was on the road for so long, hitting town to town, whether he was working for Crockett, you know, had his own promotion, working for the WWF, just on the go, nonstop. So, yeah, that makes total sense. And he has quite the collection as well. That I've I've seen some stuff on, on the Internet or on YouTube where he is, you know, he has, that man has quite the um, – wrestling collection of everything it is yeah, it's unreal oh yeah Un- unbelievable yeah he's he's got an outer room and an inner room and it's just amazing you know we went there me and my brother went there i don't know six seven years ago and um we're looking at this outer room but we're there three four hours looking through stuff literally literally three to four hours and it's like oh man this is just you know you look, finally get through that and it's all great and amazing said dude i you know thank you so much for showing us this it's been great he says well, well hold on this is my office so you go in the office and the office is three times this big wow and uh he's got all of his because he was the the uh he he did all the photos for memphis from i want to say 78 79 ish up through when he quit became a wrestler in 82 so he was the photographer and he's got all of his all of his photos still the gimmick table photos and he's got all the other uh, negatives I and mean, there's easily 35,000 photos there good grief he's also very yeah. meticulous about it during his time of I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan as anybody that listens to the show knows um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Cornette but he is 
you know, he keeps meticulous notes of 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 his time, oh, yeah. his travel. I mean, he is a like yourself. He is an historian, and it's 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 I, my yeah. favorite things to listen to him about are are just you know he'll go on a, on a, an hour rant, not a rant, but an hour um, have an hour show just about. He may talk about two years in mid south, and he'll yep. just go on and talk about it. They're just, they're interesting because he has it so meticulous and broken down. It's just it's 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 you know it's something you're not going to hear anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he has all these. He's got these giant stacks, and I mean, stacks like four feet tall of just hundred-page spiral notebooks. Yeah. And those are just filled with all the. He took them with him on the road. Boom, boom, boom. Where'd they go? You know, where'd they drive? The mileage. Uh, what they got for trans? What they got for pay? What the attendance was? Uh, what the split was? Who they fought with the rest of the car? I mean, everything is in there. He did that every night on the road. Every night, boom, boom, boom. It's all there, and that's and now he has that. I mean, that's that's gold. Yeah, it's when you got stuff like that, you know what you can create is endless, because you can bring back the past, just like at the flick of a switch. Boom! There's your past. Here's all the data from it. Well, and uh, like I said, it's just pure gold. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. You hope that one day that maybe a lot of that stuff will go into a legit. Um, like a legit professional wrestling museum, I would hope. I don't know if that's even even possible. That's one of those that like real fans would love to see, and I and not not something WWE owns, but like a legit, you know, something outside of them. A, a true professional wrestling uh, museum would be would be incredible to have. But speaking of what what do you have going on, Mark? I, I hear you got some stuff coming up. You like to plug it? Yeah, well, we've got the Memphis Comic Expo. Uh, that's the main thing coming up. Um, Whatever the, this weekend will be, what is it, the uh, 24th, 5th, whatever, Saturday, Sunday. Of uh, next week or this Coming week? Coming up next week. Next week will be, well, yeah, it'll be the uh, the 23rd, 24th, 23rd to Saturday. 23rd, 24th, yeah, Saturday, Sunday, 24th. Uh, Memphis Comic Expo, going to have hundreds of comic book creators there. Um uh, I always set up there. It's my biggest show of the year. Always set up two or three tables of memorabilia for sale, posters, books. I've got like four boxes full of old wrestling magazines, always wheel and deal. Uh, just tons of stuff. And uh, tons of people come through there both days. Because uh, I'm always, you got any this for sale, that for sale. Everything I got will be at this show. So, you know, I want to get the word out about that just because I get, you know, emails daily, people trying to buy stuff from me. I'm, I'll be selling programs, uh, MIPAS programs, programs from Florida, Atlanta, all over the, you know, southern U.S. And uh, copies of probably two dozen of my books. And so let, and everything the, will be there. And let the fans know it's at the Agri Center International. Okay, that's all off yep. Walnut Grove in Memphis. It's uh, yep, in seven 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 seven. It's pretty easy. Walnut Grove in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, there's free parking, and also the doors yep. open at 10 a.m. both Saturday and Sunday. So just again, let the fans yep. know that it's at the Agri Center in Memphis, and the doors open at 10 a.m. both Saturday and Sunday. VIP ticket holders will have early entry privileges at 9:30 on both days. So go go out and yeah, see Mark I... and see all of his all of his setup and learn actually learn and and get to see some real Memphis wrestling history. Oh yeah, it'll Mayor, be a fun time. It's always a fun time. We also got uh, and, and our our own very own Mayor McCall has an event coming up. He'd like to like to plug as well. 
Thank you, Willie. October the 7th in Blyville, Arkansas, the AWA, the Arkansas Wrestling Association, returns to the Chickasaw Arena, 610th Street. It's going to be an action-packed night. The show is called Gravity. Only five bucks to get in. Yours truly, Mayor McCall himself, will be helping call the action that night. So you definitely don't want to be miss that. Be there. October 7th, Gravity, Blyville, Arkansas. Mayor McCall in the house. There we go. So that's cool, Mark. We both got some uh, cool up, up, upcoming stuff. You know, you'll be at the Expo Center, and I'll be over in Arkansas. And man, we just gonna be doing some doing some wrestling stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It'll be good. But again, go check out Mark James at the Agri Center, September twenty third, twenty fourth. Again, the doors open at, at, uh, at ten o'clock, and he will be there having all of his Memphis, all of his books. I mean, will you bring a um, how many books will you be bringing, Mark? Probably two dozen different books is what I'm guessing. Uh, I'll bring on a bunch of my Memphis, and then I'll bring some other ones, uh, different territories, Florida, Houston, uh, Jim Crockett, stuff like that. And I'll say as someone that owns five of your books and plan to own many more, uh, they are are incredible. Uh, I can't recommend them enough. And it is, if you're a true Memphis wrestling fan or just a wrestling fan in general, please, please check out Mark's books. You will be glad you did. And also, I want the fans know that Mark can make you some awesome, awesome custom, you know, Memphis wrestling posters uh, here in the, you know, the Wrestling Talk with Mayor McCall studio. I have at least five of them that Mark has has made for me. So, Mark, see, see Mark on all your Memphis wrestling needs. Mark, what a high honor and privilege it was for you to do this interview with uh, Willie and I uh, since we started this podcast. I mean, you've been number one of the one of the top five on our radar that we wanted to talk to, and it, I've, I've worked my ass off to make this happen. You finally caved in and gave in to me, so thanks for doing that, Mark. Oh, I was glad to be on, guys. Thanks for having me. Like I said, what a, what an honor and privilege, and we just we can't thank you enough, Mark. Well, I, like I said, thanks for being on. I really. Good. Hopefully, have you on again in the future. There's so much to cover. I mean, you, you like you said, you've written sure. over, over 40 books. There, literally, we could we could do this for hours. And so, uh, would love to have you on again sometime. Yeah, it sounds good to me, guys. Just let me know, man. Appreciate you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, guys. All right.